Hey, James chapter 4, and while you're, while you're turning, let me just say, every one of us has a throne in our lives, every one of us. The throne represents the seat of power, the seat of authority in our, in, in, in our lives. This is where decisions are made. This is, this is where determinations are made. We, we, de- we decide what's, what's important, what our priorities are. What, what we make time for, how we spend our money, what our, what our choices are going to be, how we are going to live our lives. Every, every one of us has something that sits on this throne. There's not a person in this place that, that doesn't have that. Whether you recognize it or not, it really doesn't matter. It's true. There are reasons why you do the things that you do, why you make the decisions you make. And it, and it all comes back to this throne. What is sitting on this throne? It's whatever this thing is, that is the thing that calls the shots. And it's important for you to know that it could be all kinds of things that sit on this throne. It, 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 it could be things like, no, this is not my purse, so you don't have to worry about that, but it, it could be a purse. Money, I want you to think of money. For a whole lot of people, money is driving their lives. It's what sits up here on the throne of their life, and it, it drives every, everything about them. For, for other people, it might be something like a fashion statement. And I, 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 I know you all need help here, so I just... I just brought one of my Tommy Bahamas, all right? So I'm from California, forgive me for that, but there you go, okay? For many people, fashion is what's driving. I, I gotta look right, I gotta, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta appear right, I want everybody to look at me when I'm walking down the street. For, for a whole bunch of people, the thing that drives their life is, is their work, their occupation. We'll just let this laptop represent the, the thing that I do, and it's, it's where I drive, I, where, where I arrive all my esteem, and it's, 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 it's where I spend my time, and this is what's driving me, the promotion to press ahead. For, 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 other, for other people, it, it might be family. Family might sit on the throne. It, it, could, it could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It, it could be another relationship. For, for a lot of people, it's a person that is sitting up here, a person that is driving the thoughts the attitudes, the determinations, where I'm going to go, where I'm going to be. For other, for other people, it may, it may, be, a, it may be a hobby, like, like golf or something else. You, you, you have something that you, where you like to spend your free time, and you just find yourself, it, it, it drives you. It, it even drives your purse strings. It drives your time. It drives your calendar. A whole lot of people are, are, are driven by hobbies. Some, some people are, are driven by sports. I, 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 bought, I brought one of my shirts here, and I, I know it's not anything you're going to appreciate, but really, I mean, the, the Dodgers, yeah. I'm from Los Angeles. I'm allowed, right? O-H-I-O, yeah. Okay, anyway, yeah. So, um, for, but for a whole lot of people, this is it. It drives it. I, 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 I got the tickets, I, I got my attention, my time, my money. It's, 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 it's what drives who I am and, 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 and what, what, what I think. For, for, for other people, it might, it might be like a car that's driving them. I, I, I love my car, I baby my car, I wash, I wax my car, it happens every week, it gets my time, my energy, my attention. I, I'm out in the garage tinkering on my 
on my, on my car. For, for other people, it may, be, it may be your house, your home. <laughs> for Brenda and I, it certainly has not been that for the last couple of years, but I, I, I brought a hat here, just like home is the place where you hang your hat. For a lot of other people, their lives are running around and they're dictated by, by, by that stucco, by that, by that siding that they, they, they call home. For, for other people, it might be entertainment. And I just brought a remote here. Entertainment, is, it's what's running their lives. They, they, every moment is thinking about what's the next thing? Where's the next concert? What's the next, what's the next movie? What, where am I going to go? What, what am I, I going to be? What am I going to do? For, for other people, it, it might be an addiction. If I was going to be addicted to something, it would be a book. And I know that sounds crazy, but I'm a, I'm a, my name is Derek. I'm a bookaholic, all right? I mean, that's just how it goes, all right? So you may, maybe, maybe you have an addiction. It, it could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. Pe- people are addicted to things, and it, it sits on the throne of their lives, and it drives who they are, where they're going, what they're thinking, uh, their, their priorities. For, for other people, it, it, might be, it might be education. It might be going to school and, and, and getting the degree and being able to flaunt to everybody around that you have it and you're smart and you know, you're supposed to be bowed down to because, because of all this. You know, all kinds of people have all kinds of priorities in their life, differing priorities, but the deal is you have one that sits on the throne. The question is, do you know what that is? And let me tell you, it's really easy to understand. It's if you just take time to slow down and ponder, it is the thing that is calling the shots. In the end, when things are in conflict, it's the thing that wins. And when you think of it in those terms, it's probably easy to whittle down and begin to understand what that is. Now, now here's the deal, friends. And this shouldn't be anything shocking to any of us. When it comes to the end of the day, as Christians... What God wants to be is He wants to be the one that's on the throne of your life. Trying to figure out how you know, to, to represent God, I just, I've just chosen His Word. I'm going to put it right up here because this is what God wants. He wants you to sweep everything else off the throne, and He wants to occupy this space in your life. He wants His thoughts, His desires, His passions, His laws, His rules to guide you. God, God wants to be the king, the authority of your life. It's, it's not that these other things are just supposed to disappear like you're to have no value to them at all. No, no. The, 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 the change is that these things don't control your life. They don't make the decisions of your life. Ultimately, what God wants to be is the person who's going to make that decision. Now, in the church world, we use the word Lord kind of describe this. The the word Lord means boss or master. When Jesus is your Lord, he literally controls your life. He decides what's up, what's down, what's in, what's out. He determines how we should live. He determines how all these other things are going to be defined in your life. And his expectation is that we will do exactly what he calls us to do. Now, Listen, friends, one of the first steps we take when we come to Jesus is we make the declaration that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Would you say that with me? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Okay, Chad, let's, let's move ahead. Can we do that? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Let's go. One, that, there we go. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. He's the boss. He's the master. Now, why is that true? Here's why. Because he's God. And when you're God, you get to make the rules. <laughs> what a great thing to be God, right? And God is calling us to state that we understand it's true. Jesus is Lord. So let's say it together again. Ready? Jesus is Lord. And whether you make that statement or not doesn't change a thing. Because whether you hold this value to be true, the, the reality is it is true. He is Lord. The day is coming. The day is coming. We, we, we read about in Philippians chapter 2, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God the Father. But is making that confession enough? Is it enough to say Jesus is Lord? Is it enough? And the answer is no. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made a very, very, very pointed statement. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, didn't we drive out demons, perform many miracles? And I will tell you, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. Now, Jesus had just finished in the Sermon on the Mount talking about a tree and its fruit. Jesus said that we are known by the fruit in our lives. And the expectation is that followers of God will, will bear fruit in keeping with the kingdom of God. And then Jesus said that if we are not bearing the right fruit, that what happens is, is we are cut down and then literally thrown into the fire. I mean, it's a clear reference to hell. And then Jesus concluded with verse 21. Just because you make the claim doesn't make it true. Make it true. Jesus says, I, want, I, I, I am Lord. I want you to recognize me as Lord, and then I want to live as if I actually am your Lord. Now, I, I want to I encourage you to not slide by this too quickly. There are all kinds of people who go to church and who would say Jesus is Lord, but the answer truthfully is he's not. Oh, uh, Jesus is maybe part of their lives, but there's something else that sits on the throne and makes all the decisions for them. And when our lives are in this condition, he is not Lord. And when he's not Lord, bad things happen. God, God wants to make sure that, that, we are, that we are very clearly understanding how this is all supposed to work. And, and to that statement, I, I want to add this truth. If Jesus is not your Lord, then he's not your Savior. These two titles of Jesus go hand in hand. If you want him to be your savior, save you from sin, save you from hell, save you from that everlasting doom, then you need to make him your Lord. Now, as I, as I say that, I want, I want to make this point clearly. Again, God doesn't expect that all these other things are going to disappear. A car, a family, house, hobbies, education. No, they don't need to all go away, although some may need to go away. An addiction or a lust, a, a lousy attitude, something that deliberately turns me away from God, turns my attention away from his kingdom. But most of these things probably just need to be reevaluated. They need to be tweaked, redefined. 
They need, they need to take a subservient position in our lives. They don't call the shots or get to direct our paths. They, they, their paths are directed by this path because this sits on the throne of our lives. Now, friends, I want to make sure you hear me. Sports, your marriage, your house, those, those are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. Some of them may just be need to be defined from a godly perspective. What does God say about golf? What does God say about my education? What does God say about money? If that thing or relationship gets in the way of your relationship with God, then it is a bad thing. If it's interrupting in any way what God would have you be, what he would have you do, how he would have you act, then take, it off the, take that thing off the throne and put God back in his rightful place. Many years ago, Brenda and I were dating, and we were starting to get serious in our relationship, and we were starting to talk about this thing called marriage. And I knew with, with, there wasn't anything inside of me that wasn't absolutely sure that God had called me into ministry. But at that point, I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. For, in fact, for quite a while, I really believed that God was calling me to be a missionary, to go overseas, to go to Europe or go to Asia someplace. So I, I, I needed to talk to Brenda about that. See, I had a really, really good friend at that point, still is a good friend, who really believed that he had been called to Europe to, to serve and to minister, and he was in love with the girl, and his, the girlfriend said, I ain't ever going to live more than 100 miles from my hometown, more than 100 miles from my mom and dad. So just get this into your head. Get it into your skull. If you're with me, then, then, then we are living within this radius of, of, of my home. So where he believed he was supposed to be was Europe, which was a long way past 100 miles, which means he had to make a choice. And the choice he made was to stay with the girl. I, I, I didn't want to be in that boat. So I had to ask Brenda, are you willing to go anywhere? Are you willing to, to be anywhere for the cause of God? Anywhere that God would call us to go. Are you willing to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our marriage and where we're going to live? And if the answer had been no, Brenda and I would have broke up. But she looked at me and said, like, it's like, kind of like, are you crazy? Of course, I will go anywhere that God wants us to do. Now, it's interesting that God didn't ask us in the end to go to Asia. He didn't ask us to go to, to Europe. He asked us to go to central Ohio. And many, many of you have wondered how this California boy could wind up in central Ohio. Well, here's why. It's because Brenda and I believe that God was calling us here. It, there's nothing you could have done about it. If we did not believe we were supposed to be here, we wouldn't be here. We're here because we're trying to follow the will and the purpose of God in our lives, even with something as central as where we are going to live. And that's the point, friends. God wants to sit on the throne of your life. He wants to be Lord, boss, master. He wants all the decisions of your life to be made in accordance with his will and his purpose. And James is making the same point right here in chapter 4. And the word that James uses is submit. Submit. James chapter 4, verse 7. In fact, let's, 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 read, let's read these five words together. They're very simple. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Let's read it to, together again. It says, submit yourselves then to God. One more time. Submit yourselves then to God. 
you are choosing to put God on the throne of your life. Now, this word submission is really a military term. It means to rank yourself under. And for those of you who have been in the military, you understand this. In the military, there's always somebody over you, always somebody with another stripe on their shoulder, always somebody with more authority over you. There's a chain of command. And when the people above you tell you what to do, you say, yes, sir. Your job is to submit to the authority. Dig a ditch, you dig the ditch. Yes, sir. And if somebody then says, fill the ditch in and, and dig a new ditch over here, it's not why, it's yes, sir. We follow the authority. Your superior officer speaks, you submit, you obey. And James is just taking us really to the root of what Christianity is all about. It, it doesn't get any more basic than this. Followers of Jesus recognize him as their Lord, their boss, their master. And they willingly submit, rank themselves under that authority. And what James is telling us all to do right here, friends, is take account Take account. Are you truly a follower of Jesus? And before you just blurt out yes, here's the question. Are, are you submitting to the rule, to the authority of God in your life? Does he actually sit on the throne of your life? And to help us take account here, James lays out a contrast. He contrasts the life of a person who has not submitted, who is unsubmissive to the life of somebody who is. And what James is asking you to do is to take account. Which of these two lists describe you? So let's begin with the qualities of those who are unsubmissive to God. The list is laid out in the first six verses of chapter 4. James 4, 1 through 6. And it begins with this thought. People who are unsubmissive to God are selfish in their life ambition. And what James means here is that they are people who are looking out for their own interests. What sits on the throne is themselves, me, I. My self-interest is what drives my life. Their focus is self-absorption. They're interested in themselves first, and honestly, themselves only any interest they show in others always has a selfish motivation. What's in it for me? If I do that, if I give my time, my energy, my resource to that, what's in it for me? What, what am I going to get out? If I do this for you, what's coming back at me? And then James goes ahead and describes some of the outcomes of what takes place when you have selfish ambition and yourself sitting on the throne of your life. Well, first of all, James says, fighting and quarreling happens. What causes fights and quarreling? If it come from the desires that battle in you, I want what I want. And if I don't get it, I'm, I'm going to mess with the people around. You just, you think about it. How many relational problems are driven by self-interest? Someone is getting in the way of where I want to be. If you're having problems with the people around you, instead of blaming them, maybe what you need to do is look in a mirror and ask the important question, is my selfish ambition causing this issue, this problem, this fight? Second outcome of a person with selfish ambition is killing and coveting. James says in verse 2, you want something but don't get it, so you kill and covet. And even with that, you may not get what you want. 
These people have their lives focused on certain goals. They covet them, and they're willing to go to great lengths to make that happen. They will destroy another person if they get in the way. James uses the word kill here in a figurative sentence. I mean, I mean think squash. You get in my way, I'm going to knock you out of the way so I can get what I want. And it drives these self-absorbed people to take maybe one more step, and that's to pray with wrong motives. Now, if you, if you open up your ears, you can hear people who have selfish ambition in their prayer lives. Lord, give me this. Lord, give me that. Gimme, 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 gimme. It's, it's all about me. They're not, their prayer lives have one central focus, myself. Their prayer isn't about God's will. It's not about God's desire. It's not about God's kingdom. It's not about what God wants. Prayers in this instant, become the height of selfishness. Now, friends, I, I want to encourage you to here to take account. Is the trouble you're having with those around you really all their fault? Or could it be selfish ambition? And it's leading to all kinds of destruction in your relationships. And while I'm saying this, I want to add one more point here. A lot of people are, are talking today about about the verses in the Bible that talk about, I should just pray and ask God for whatever I want. Like the words of Jesus in, in Mark 11, he said, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes, what, what that, believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. In this instance, prayer is becoming that big genie in the bottle to get whatever I want. Now, listen, the Bible does say this, but you have to put the caveat that goes along with it. And here's the caveat, is what I'm praying actually the Lord's will. If I put Jesus on, my, on the throne of my life, and what I really want in my life is to bring him honor, and so I'm asking God to help me to do things that will, and, and to use my life to accomplish his will, or am I trying to use my prayer life to get what I want? If God is on the throne of your life, then you're going to desire what he wants. You're going to submit to rank yourself under his authority. Now, now, now th th what you need to know is that's how Jesus prayed. You see it at the very end of his life when he's up in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, he's, just, he's just a short time away from being arrested. Where Then he's going to be tried and convicted, and he's completely innocent. And then he's going to be crucified. That horrendous ordeal that is awaiting him, Jesus is in the garden and as he's praying, he's saying, Lord, I don't want to do this. Take it away. And then he says, but not as I will, Lord. My prayer is really for what you want. Accomplish your will, Lord. I'm submitting myself to your authority. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Disciples came to him and said, Lord, help us and show us. And so the, the Lord gave them that model prayer. And I mean, we, we all have it memorized. Jesus, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, and said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. As it's going on in heaven, as your will is being accomplished in heaven, my prayer, Lord, is that it will be accomplished right here in me right now. I, I'm putting you on the throne of my life, and I want, I want to do what you would have me do. That's so why we end our prayers with, in Jesus' name. It's really invicting 
this call of God into our lives, that you're the authority, and I, what I'm praying, Lord, is for your will to be done. So how do you know if you're submitting to God? Well, do you have selfish ambition? Have you scooted God off the throne? Have you put yourself up here? If you have selfish ambition, then, then God doesn't sit on the throne. James gives us a second, a second way to know that we're living unsubmissively in our lives. And that's through a horrible label. And the label is called adultery. People who are unsubmissive to God are adulterous. Adulterous is someone who's committed to one person, but they're giving themselves an egregious way to a, another person. They're becoming physically and emotionally intimate with something or someone else other than the one that they are committed to. It's what spiritual adultery is all about, replacing your relationship with God with another. Now, I want you to remember who James is writing to here. He's writing to a bunch of Christians. These are people who had committed themselves to Christ, and they are turning to someone else to the point that James is saying, you need to be really careful here because you're committing adultery, spiritual adultery with God. You're taking Jesus off the throne and you're putting someone or something else on the throne. Now, last week when we were talking about wisdom, we, we talked about Solomon, the, the, the wisest man who ever lived. Sad, sadly, though, someplace along the line, Solomon, Solomon got himself way off track. I mean, like, like way over the line. And, and the, the, the amazing thing is, is God had instructed him on things to concentrate on, gave him his will, and Solomon had, for whatever reason, into his relationship with God, had chosen to forsake all that. Right, right before Moses died, he called all the children of Israel together. They had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and, and Moses called them together, and he gathered them together, and he, he laid out to them the law. Now, you can find it written in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy literally means the second law, law of the second time. It's not that there was a new law coming along. It's just that this is a whole new generation that has risen up for 40 years, all the parents and the grandparents from the rebellion in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 in Kadesh Barnea. They had all died over that 40 years in the wilderness. And now their kids and grandkids had risen up. And these were going to be the people that were going to enter into the promised land. And before they went, Moses, like he had done with their parents at Mount Sinai 40 years early and delivered the law, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law of God. He's reminding these people of what had been said. So Deuteronomy is this checking over and over and over to remember, to remember, to remember, and to, to take that covenant that we had made, that your parents had made with the Lord, and you renew it, you reestablish it. It belongs to you. And in his speech, one of the things that, that he got to was talking about kings, about the future king of Israel. Now, what you need to know, it was not God's will that there would be any king that would sit on a throne in Israel. What God wanted was, he, he wanted to be the king of Israel. But God knew that the day was coming that the children of Israel would rebel against this and they would demand a king. In fact, the words would be, we want to be like the nations around about us. God was saying, I don't want you to be anything like them. But the day is coming when they're going to demand that. And so when it comes, and it did, by the way, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, hundreds of years later, but it did come. God was warning them about that day on this day through Moses. 
And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 20, God lays out the law about the person who would come and be king. Now, I'm not going to put this passage in front of you. I just, it's, it's listed in your bulletins. And I want you to circle it because I really want you to go home this afternoon and read this and check out what God is saying about the king that is going to sit on a throne over Israel. I mean, he, he really says, I want them to put all of their trust in me. In other words, I don't want them collecting a bunch of chariots and horses because then their trust will become in their military might. And I don't want you to trust in horses and chariots. What I want you to do is trust in me. I'm enough to see you through. And then God said, I want, I want to make sure that all of your devotion is to me. I don't want there to be any, I don't want there to be any false gods. I don't want there to be any wives that are like growing into numerous accounts where those wives may be pulling the king away. So don't let that happen. Don't let a foreigner sit on the throne because he will bring where he was from and all of that, he will bring it to them. Don't let the king amass much wealth because that, that will be something that will draw his head away. So no, not too many wives and not too much wealth and not too many horses. And, and then very, very, very interestingly, God said kind of at the end of this passage, when a king is coming to the throne, what I want them to do is literally get out a copy of the law, open it up, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and I want the king in his own hands to copy it down so he has his own personal copy of the Torah. So he will read every word and he will write every word so that it will be upon his hand and upon his heart and upon his mind. And so now Solomon is the third king of Israel. The amazing about thing, hundreds of years after Moses had spoken these words, is that, is that Solomon was really faithful to what God had called him to for the first seven of his 40 years. Solomon becomes king, asks for wisdom. God blesses him with wisdom to be able to judge the people in a right way that would glorify and honor God. And then God has put upon this man, Solomon, to build a temple. And for the, for, for the next seven years, that's what he does. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38 says, in the, 11th, in the 11th year, in the month of Bol, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. Solomon had spent seven years building it. And then the very first verse of the very next chapter, Chapter 6, verse 38 runs right into chapter 7, verse 1, and it says this. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete construction of his palace. Six, seven years to build God's palace, 13 years to build his own. Now, it may seem really small and really trivial here, but you see a crack coming on in the armor, and from there things began to shift. Solomon started amassing wealth. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14 says that the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. How much is 666 talents? Well, I'll tell you, it's 25 tons of gold. On Wednesday, just three days, four days ago, the price of gold, the price of gold was... Um, well, I wrote it down. I, I don't have it here. It was like $1,600, which means for a pound of gold, it was $26,000, which means a ton of gold would be $52 million, which means 25 tons of gold was, was 1 billion 300 million. Every year, Solomon was receiving 1 billion 
$300 million of gold into his own personal coffers. And that didn't include all the other income that was coming to him through trade and the economy. Solomon was filthy rich. And then he started amassing horses and chariots. First Kings chapter 10, verse 26, he accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. There's so, so many horses and chariots that they couldn't be housed in one place. He literally built cities. People have scoffed about this until a few years ago when they actually uncovered a few of these places where they found Solomon's stables. Solomon was putting his trust in himself. I'm rich. I've got an army to defend me. And then we come to 1 Kings 11, a woeful tale of Solomon's downward spiral. He started acquiring women. By the time he was done, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A concubine was nothing more than a sexual servant to, the, to, to her owner. And many of these women had come from foreign countries, completely denying what God had said in Deuteronomy 17 about the king. Don't do this. Because what's going to happen is when you bring a king or a queen to sit on a throne and they bring their other gods, they're going to pollute the kingdom and it's going to cause people to turn their heads. And that's exactly what happened. With all these women in, in his house, suddenly... 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4 says, Solomon grew old. His wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as the, heart of his, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. I mean, what Solomon was doing was building temples. This is the guy that had built the temple for the Lord, the actual true God. And now he's building temples around Jerusalem for all these other false gods. And now he's going with his wives to these temples to sacrifice to these gods. So what could be said about Joshua, about, about Solomon? Here's what. He was a spiritual adulterer. God was not his first love anymore. God was off the throne. Women, lust, money, power, lots of things had overtaken God's way. God's place. And the truth is a whole bunch of you understand this. You understand the pain and the heartache that adultery can bring. Some of you have endured the unfaithfulness of a spouse. Other, use, other of you have witnessed it. Maybe in a parent, a child, a friend. You know the devastating pain and scars that come into people's lives. And I'm just telling you, friends, when we treat God this way, it has the same effect. When we choose to give our hearts to somebody else, to set something else and pursue that, it breaks God's heart. And the truth is, it doesn't do us any good either. And you have to know that there are consequences for making this decision. And James makes it really clear here. Two powerful consequences. First, you become an enemy of God. 
Now, before you go throwing rocks at God, I, I want to make sure and encourage you to put the blame on the person who caused the pain, the adulterer. God, God never wanted to be in this painful relationship with anybody. But, but, but it's what happens when adultery enters in. And here's the point. God can't abide it. He's a holy and pure God, and He can't abide sharing the throne with somebody else. You push Him off, He'll leave. It'll break His heart, but He'll leave. It raises an important question. Can, can all of this be righted? Can God forgive? Can things be made whole again? Can they come back? And the answer to that is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's what salvation is all about. The, the truth be told, every one of us has been in this position with God. That's, that's why we needed to come to Jesus and accept Him as our Lord and Savior. So yeah, God can forgive, but that forgiveness demands repentance on our part. It demands that we wipe the other things off the throne that are trying to take His place and make sure that our heart is devoted to Him. And there's one more thing that adulterous people bring into their relationship with God, and that's that's envy. They literally bring God to envy. And, and, I, and I can hear the question, what, God envious? I mean, isn't envy a sin? And the answer is yes and no. Envy is a sin when, when, when you are envying something out of a selfish ambition to get it. But when God envies you, it's not for a selfish ambition. He's looking out for your best interest. So when we take God and we commit spiritual adultery and we push him aside, he knows eventually where that's going to lead us and where it's going to take us. And God doesn't want any of that bad stuff happening to us. And it drives God to a point of envy because he wants you in his arms. He wants you in his family. And honestly, that's where life is best. God understands that and he wants nothing but our best. So when we choose to live for ourselves and throw up our hands at God, we cause him great grief great pain, great heartache, and it leads to an envy that we would return home. And this is where a life of self-serving brings us, to no, to no good place, emptiness, ultimate humility, eternal loss. And James is warning us here, be careful. You, you are submitting to something. Do you, do you understand what is sitting on the throne of your life? And if, if it's not God, then that unsubmissiveness to God will be seen in certain characteristics. And now James is flipping the page. He's saying, is there is a path that is leading us away from God and unsubmissiveness. There, there's also qualities and characteristics that come into our lives if we are actually submissive to God. So the question is, what are those qualities? What are the qualities of those who are being submissive to God? And James talks about these qualities in verses 7 through 10. People who are submissive to God do five things. Let, let, let me put them in front of you very quick. Letter A, they actively resist the evil one. In fact, the words here from James are just really simple. Resist. Resist the devil. Because here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get you to take this and put God over here and put something else up here. Anything. Anything but God. Anything but. 
And what James is saying to you is the people who are submissive to God are resisting all of this. They're saying, no, I will not have any part of that. I am going to make sure that God is the one sitting on the throne. And let me just tell you that that this is a continual, ongoing issue in our lives. This is never going to stop. Satan is out to, to steal and to kill and destroy. And what he wants you to do is take on the words I and me and let them be central in your vocabulary. I, what I want, what I deserve, what I'm going to get, how I'm going to live. And when you start hearing that in, what, in, your, in your conversation, in your talk, you, you need to say, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not going there. This is about God and his will and his purpose and what I'm going to do. People who are submissive to God resist the devil. And then secondly, letter B, they equally seek deep intimacy with God. The words here from James are, come near to God. He will come near to you. As as hard as they are pushing away from the enemy, as hard as they are pushing away from this unsubmissive quality in their lives to pick up any other thing and put it on the throne, as as hard as they are doing that, they're, they're, they're equally striving with as much energy, with as much strength to draw near to God, to come near to Him to be in deep intimacy with him. And if that's going to happen, then letter C needs to, needs to take on our quality, quality in our lives, which is repentance. We need to be quick to repent. James says we need to wash our hands. When you're moving towards God, you, want, you really literally want everything else to fall away. And and when you start seeing God for who he truly is and for what he's really all about, you want all these other things to not have the place and the seat of authority on your life. You you see where they will really eventually lead you to. And so these are not the things that grab your attention. And so you are constantly repenting and washing your hands of the things that are striving to be up in this place. Why would you do that? Because more than anything, you want to bring God joy, delight. You want him to find pleasure in who you are, what you're about, how you're acting. And that brings to a fourth quality that James lays out about people who are submitting to God. And that's they are looking to live righteously, purifying their heart. James says, wash your hands, purify your hearts, you double-minded. No, no longer. A double-minded person is someone who is seeking to contrary things in their life. It's the adulterer. I want my wife. I want my mistress too. The wife's not going to stand for that. The mistress isn't going to stand for it either. The mistress may say, oh, I'm okay with it, but eventually the mistress is going to say, we're done with that. You want this? Get rid of that. A double-minded person is a person who can't make up their mind. Listen, friends, life doesn't work with two competing things sitting on the throne. You you can't have it that way. Eventually, your sin will find you out, and it will bring your destruction. People who are purifying their hearts are constantly working to allow nothing to enter in their hearts that is going to pull them away from the thing that should be sitting on the throne of their lives. These people's hearts are solely tuned to God, turned and tuned. And the longer they walk, the closer they walk and the more intimate they become because they're purifying their hearts. And it leads to one last way that James describes those who are submissive to God. And that's there's a sadness, there's a mourning over any bit of distance in their relationship with God. Grieve, mourn, wail, 
change your laughter to mourning and joy to gloom. I mean, the, the, these are people who look out and see things for who they really are, and they know the pain that has been brought their way. This is Jesus in, in Matthew 23, at the very end of the chapter, when he's crying over Jerusalem, and he's seeing the destructiveness that has come to, to his people, to God's people, and Jesus is weeping over all of that. Pe- people, people who are drawing to God are weeping for all the other junk in the world that is pulling us so very far away from God. Now, listen, friends, in your life, there is a throne. And what sits on this throne defines who you are. It defines everything else about your life. It it defines your decisions, your pocketbook. And the question this morning is, who are you submitting to? What are you submitting to? And here's the bottom line. When you choose to put God on the throne and follow his way, it will lead to life and peace and eternity of the presence of God. When you take God off the throne and put anything else on there, it will lead to death and pain and destruction and eternal damnation. God loves you so much that he doesn't want any of this. And so he died to wipe this all out so that you could be transferred from your rebelliousness and your unsubmissiveness into the very throne of God. And the question is, are you here? Church, are you here? Let me encourage you. Bow your heads. Would you do that? And friends, it really is a message that's very, very, very simple. And has a very personal application. And God wants you to take a look. Is he on the throne of your life? And if he's not, why not? What needs to change? There's nothing better than a heart that's set apart for God and a life lived to bring him honor and glory. So, Lord, I pray that you'll help us, even right in this moment, to take account. To not be satisfied with anything but your best. And, Father, it's our prayer, my prayer, that each of us would take the words to heart. That we would submit to you and you alone. Help us, Lord, to make that determination. And we lift it in the name of Jesus, the one who makes it possible. And God's people said...